Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of books about a wide range of topics, fiction and nonfiction. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm talking with author David Handler, whose mystery novel, The Man Who Wasn't All There, has been published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, David. Good afternoon. Good to see you. Thank you. Would you start us off with a brief excerpt from the book, please? Happy to. I was me again. For six glorious weeks, I'd been living my dream, the one that I'd been clinging to for more than a decade. Ever since the New York Sunday Times book review proclaimed me the first major new literary voice of the 1980s. Ever since Joe Papp's loveliest and most gifted discovery, Marilyn Nash, and I were anointed as the Big Apple's it couple. Ever since I got writer's block, snorted my career at my nose, and merrily dropped-kicked Lulu and me back to my crappy fifth-floor walk-up on West 93rd Street, where I was relegated to scratching out a non-distinguished living as a ghostwriter of celebrity memoirs. But now, now I had my voice back, not to mention residential privileges in the place I'd once called home. Every morning I was awake before dawn in that king-sized bed in Merrily's opulent 16th floor apartment on Central Park West, my head exploding with ideas. I was there, but I wasn't there. My body was living in the autumn of 1993. My heart and soul were living in the summer of 75, my sweet season of madness, as I was calling my new novel. I was back in my New York, the grimy, graffiti-strewn, rodent and drug-infested, four-to-city, drop-dead New York, the New York of CBGBs, the Mud Club, Max's, and those after-hours dance clubs in Spanish Harlem that the Walt Whitman award-winning poet Regina Aintree, my first great love, and I would go roaring up to at 4 a.m. on my bad Black Norton. The New York of the Chelsea Hotel, where we were making crazy monkey love in Reggie's third-floor room the night Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols stuck that knife into Nancy Spungen's stomach in room 100. Allegedly, he OD'd before he came to trial. I was so into what I was writing that while Merrily's espresso machine did its thing, I'd skip my morning shave and put on a white T-shirt, torn jeans, Chippewa boots, and my 1933 Werber leather flight jacket, just like I used to. An author is a method actor who works alone on paper, and I was totally in character. The one I'd been in 75, who shaved twice a week and chain-smoked unfiltered Chesterfields. I bought a carton of them and allowed myself one smoke a day after dinner. I'd even had grandfather's old Ronson Veriflame lighter resuscitated at a cigar shop on Madison. All it had needed was a new flint spring assembly, the stooped ancient repairman told me. While I drank my espresso, I'd devour a toasted baguette with blackberry jam from Merrily's farm while I put down Lulu's breakfast of nine logs mackerel for cats. Lulu has rather unusual eating habits for a basset hound, and trust me, the breath to prove it. Then I'd head straight for my solid steel 1958 Olympia Portable, which was parked on the genuine sign stickly library table set before the windows overlooking Central Park, 
in the office that Merrily had custom furnished for me, complete with a leather Morris chair and an Edward Hopper landscape painting of the craggy main coastline. Not a print, the actual painting. I'd crank up Rockaway Beach by the Ramones, which I listened to every morning on vinyl, the way it was meant to be listened to, and I'd time travel back to that sweet season when I was so young, talented, and brilliant, so high on life and an array of psychedelics that I was utterly convinced no one had ever lived a life like mine or possessed the ideas and insights I possessed or shared the passion that Reggie and I shared. It was all brand new. Thanks, David. Can you uh, explain how this section from from the beginning of the book sets up uh, a little bit of the plot to come without spoiling the surprises? Well, basically, Merrily is off in um, Budapest filming a remake of The Sun Also Rises with Mr. Mel Gibson. So he's got the place to himself. And he has been living this incredibly Spartan life there for the past six weeks, has written 100 pages, and decides that since it's mid-October and he needs a break, he's going to um, drive out to um, Merrily's farm in Lyme, Connecticut, and take in the fall color, uh, pick some apples uh, and pears, and sit in front of the fireplace, big stone fireplace, and sip single malt and think deep thoughts about where the next direction of the plot is going. And uh, what happens is that uh, the next morning... Um, a really beat-up, rusty, old uh, Crown Victoria State Police car pulls up the driveway, and out comes this short, fat little guy who's unshaven and has really bad B.O. and is sort of wearing a state police uniform, but sort of isn't. It's just sort of matching gray shirt and trousers and sneakers, which is not a police issue. And um, he says... Um, is this Marilee Nash's place? And Hoagie says, yeah, I should, she's not here right now. He says, who are you? And Hoagie says, uh, you first. Can I see uh, your ID, please? And this uh, round, little, fat little fellow pulls out a dog-eared orange card that identifies him as Austin Talmadge, a member in good standing of the Connecticut State Police Booster Club. And Hoagie says, you're not an actual state trooper, are you? And he says, uh, actually, I'm auxiliary police. And uh, I'd advise you not to mess with me or smart mouth me. And Hoagie looks in the back of a car and there's like piles of clothing and, and uh, greasy food wrappers. The guy's like sort of like a borderline homeless guy. And um, they get into an argument and he, he uh, drives off. And two seconds later, uh, Hoagie's neighbor comes driving up, and he says, uh, was that Austin Talmadge? And he says, yeah, that's what he said his name was. And he said, oh, my God, he's out again. Hoagie's neighbor says, if I were you, I would go back to New York, like, right now. Don't hesitate. Pack your stuff up and go. You don't want to mess with this guy. And uh, Hoagie says, but I just got here. And he says, well, then in that case, call the police and let them know what happened. And he does. And within half an hour, there's a convoy of about 10 police cars going all the way up to the deputy superintendent and an envoy from the governor's office there. And um, Hoagie finds himself in the middle of this 
crazy mess. But let me just stop you because uh, you've set up uh, what's to happen. And uh, I-, I believe that the prior 11 books in the, in the Stuart Hogue series uh, all, all have involved homicide investigations. Is that right? Usually what ends up happening is uh, he finds himself in situations where uh, somebody gets killed. Yeah. <laughs> is it fair to say that that happens here? Yes. All right. So let's just sort of take a step back a bit. And uh, could you tell our audience where the character of Hoagie comes from? He's actually a, a, a taller version of me. Um, my first novel was a literary novel. It was called Kiddo. It took me 10 years to get it published, but it got a rave review in the Sunday New York Times book review. I got an entire page to myself. I had my picture in the Sunday New York Times book review with an excerpt. I mean, this is like every young writer's dream, you know. And um, after that, I decided um, to start thinking about what I wanted to do next. And what I wanted to do next was actually draw upon an experience I had had early in my career. I was, I did ghostwrite a celebrity memoir. And it was a very, very unusual experience because you're not working for a publisher. You're working for a celebrity and you're inside the palace walls, so to speak. And they are, I hate to disillusion you, but memoirs are not really the truth. They're more like a person's uh, trying to get on record their version of the truth. And I spent a year working uh, uh, with with my celebrity and it was such an unusual experience that I decided I would try writing a novel about it. It was turned down by uh, 24 houses. Uh, so I decided that he was a little too grim and then he needed a sidekick. So I gave him a basset hound, Lulu, figuring that maybe it would be a little bit more entertaining. And I sold it immediately. So it, it, it's actually Lulu's series. I, I took a, a 20 year hiatus. Uh, I did eight books between 1998 and 1997. And then I resumed the series in 2017. And during those 20 intervening years, all of the fan mail that I got or emails or whatever, uh, said, when is Lulu coming back? No one ever said, when is Hoagie coming back? Lulu is actually sort of the star of the series. She's got a lot of personality, and um, it's uh, just been a joy to write. I was thrilled to have the opportunity to, to pick the series up again. So to the extent to which, uh, you know, he's based on you but is not you, has the character developed differently as the series went on from the way you initially conceived him? When I first started, the very first book, The Man Who Died Laughing, which came out in 1998 and was uh, uh, nominated for an Anthony Award, and uh, the third book in the series, The Man Who Would Be F. Scott Fitzgerald, did win an Edgar Award. Um, He was really still kind of on his ass. I mean, he really was uh, living hand to mouth. Um, He was still drinking too much and was really embittered uh, about the way he had messed up his uh, relationship with Marilee, uh, who he was still madly in love with, and and she didn't want to have anything to do with him anymore because he had cheated on her. I mean, he he was he was a bad boy, and um, over the course of the years, uh, he it gradually comes to kind of 
grow up. And um, the books I'm writing now, the the arc that I'm writing now, they've actually gotten to the point where, you know, she invited him out to her farm over the summer to work on some pages. And when, when uh, as I mentioned in the section I read, when she is off in, in Budapest, she said, why don't you stay in, in the apartment, which would have been unthinkable 10 years earlier. And um, so they're, they're inching their way back to getting, you know, closer together. The, the editor who signed me up uh, in 2017 felt that the, the glue that held the series together was his relationship with Marilee, the arc of, of, of their relationship. And you have another series, the Burger Mitri series. Is one of them harder to write than the other? Uh, they're, they're, it's a very interesting question. Um, from a craftsmanship point of view, the Burger Mitri series is much more difficult because it's, first of all, it's in the third person and it's two lead characters and you move the ball down the field with alternating chapters from two different points of view. So uh, one chapter is is Desmitri, who is a uh, black resident state trooper, and then the next chapter is Mitch. And so from a technical point of view, craft-wise, I could not have written that series when I was first starting out. On the other hand, with Hoagie, this is something I had sort of forgotten uh, until I picked it up again. He's supposed to be a world-class novelist and an incredibly observant, witty guy. In other words, he's smarter than I am. He's funnier than I am. So his voice, the nuances of his observations, when he walks into a room and is describing somebody, uh, what they're wearing, uh, what kind of a you know vibe he's getting off of them, he, he has to be giving us the observations of a world-class, very, very gifted novelist. Writing first person is much easier because you're just following your lead character's nose around um, from a structural point of view. But the actual writing part, uh, finding his voice, honing it, making sure that every line is as good as it can be, every, you know, wisecrack, it, it, it's it's extremely challenging, but it's a challenge that, that I just love. I mean, I, I it, it has gotten me through the pandemic, through everything the last couple of years, you know, um, I'm just thrilled to be able to escape uh, back to 1993 and, and be writing Hoagie again. I'm the happiest guy around. So what appeals to you by having New York City in the 90s as sort of the backdrop? You know, in this book, you know, the action takes place in Connecticut, but uh, the sort of framing device, you've chosen a particular time and place. The big deal uh, why I quit the series in 97 was that when I started the series, there was no email, there was no internet, there was no cell phones, there was no 24-hour cable news, and celebrity secrets were a really, really big deal, and celebrity memoirs were a really, really big deal. Um, they aren't anymore. There are no celebrity secrets. I, I, I started writing... The Man Who Died Laughing, my first book in 1986, and I still remember a very famous press conference that Rock Hudson gave that year, uh, haggard, gaunt, uh, announcing, you know, to the world that he that he had AIDS. And Rock Hudson had been a major, major movie star for 30 years, and no one in America knew he was gay. 
Everyone in Hollywood knew he was gay. Everyone in the Hollywood press corps knew he was gay. But uh, it was a secret. It, people kept secrets in those days. And um, after the uh, onset of the Internet, it's kind of like the gatekeepers were gone, you know. And if I were to write it now, um, it would be even more ridiculous because we have viral videos, camera phones, you name it. There are, there are no secrets. So we talked about it and, and, um, my editor said, why don't you go back, pick a spot before America Online, before email started, when you were back just, you know, using your typewriter and your, your fax machine churning way. Uh, so I picked 92. And I'm sort of writing in a weird way. I'm writing book three A, book three B, book three C. I'm sort of, I'm sort of inserting them into that time frame. It, it, it seems like ancient history to some people, uh, uh, younger people. I, it, it doesn't to me because I, I was like a working professional. And, and to tell you the truth, I still have a lot of the same clothes. You know, I, I mean, I'm still wearing the same suits. Uh, so, uh, but it, it it's weird because it's it's like a long time ago. How important is it to you to play fair with the reader so that by the end of the book, the reader can, you know, have that sort of, you know, sweet spot of feeling both surprised and feeling that the reveal is logical? Well, it's it's that's a that's a very interesting question. One of the hardest parts about doing this job is that um, you're writing for several audiences. You're writing for casual readers you're writing for people who are highly astute and are really paying excruciating close attention to you and tr and trying to outwit you and and think that they're going to figure out what's going on. Uh, you, you're, you're talking about younger people. You're talking about older people. So what you need to do is 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 kind of make as much information available as possible. So that usually, I mean, almost always when, when somebody talks to me, they say, yeah, I, I, I thought that's who it was. And of course, you know, you know, I want you to think during the course of the book that every single person you come in contact with, uh, is a possible suspect. You know, um, you can't just pull something, you know, um, out of nowhere and it turns out it was the guy driving the cab or the elevator operator. You know, it, it's, complicated to to do it's not an easy thing to do but but um i try to make it work for several different audiences um uh, and um i've gotten better at as the years go by my my favorite thing is outsmarting the people who really really think they've got me but of course they're only spending a few days reading the book and i'm spending a year on it so uh, i do have that advantage can you talk a little bit about how your your work uh, in film and television's influenced writing novels? I actually learned a lot of the basics. I went to journalism school. I was a journalist, but I never wrote short stories and um, never wrote fiction. Um, I wanted to write fiction, but I learned a huge amount about how to write fiction from writing TV in terms of how to develop characters, how you, you further the story through the behavior of your characters, uh, just the basic building blocks of introduction, complication, resolution, things that seem like real simple things 
aren't that simple when you start trying to uh, write fiction. And um, so for me, it was kind of a good training ground. I was mostly, you know, doing sitcoms. I also did one hour shows and I was also a screenwriter. I did about 10 or 12 film assignments. Um, I worked with some really terrific people, William Goldman, Gary Marshall, uh, Rob Reiner. I, I, you know, I, I learned a lot about storytelling as I was writing the Hogan series in the eighties and nineties. Um, I, I decided at a certain point in the late nineties that I really wanted to devote my, my full attention to writing fiction. One of the problems with working in TV especially is that you get used to having a lot of other people around to rely on to finish a thought for you. And um, your muscles start to atrophy. It's much harder to write a book. You have to do everything. You're, you are the writer, director, composer. You are the set designer. You do the costumes. You do everything yourself. And whereas Whereas when you work in TV, they're only using one part of what you do, which is we want you to write jokes and tell a story. That's it. We only want that part of you. One of the great joys of being a novelist is that it summons everything that you have. And I, for me, that's the ultimate job. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about, you know, you know, repairing cars or dentistry or anything, a job that really, really allows you to use all the skills you have to me is 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 a good job you know so uh, it sounds like i mean you referred earlier to the way that uh, the character of hoagie was was based uh, on yourself and in the excerpt you read when we started out you had the line in which he talked about himself as a, a method actor uh who, who works alone on paper and it sounds like uh that's another aspect of hoagie that that you share Definitely. I did a lot of uh, improv uh, and um, drama in, in college and, and in my youth, and I've worked with actors a lot. And um, I am basically playing all the roles of the characters. All the characters are, in one sense or another, me. I try to give them some element from from my past or, or some element of me. And I, I am especially focused on trying to make the villain, so-called villain, uh, not a monster. I don't write monsters. I write human beings who are uh, weak, who make a mistake, who want something they can't have, whatever it might be. But I, I try, try very hard to put myself in the shoes of the killer and ask myself, and hopefully ask the reader, if you were that desperate, if you were put in that situation and your life was going to be taken away from you because of a mistake you made, would you have done what they did? You know, I, I try to make the novels uh, novels. They're adult. Um, they're not just um, they're not Mickey Spillane, you know, uh, which isn't to dismiss Mickey Spillane. But um, I, I do try to bring the what I would think of as the depth of a, of a novel, a full-fledged, fleshed-out novel to them. Well, thank you very much for your time today, David, and for the book. I, I very much enjoyed reading it. Uh, thank you, listeners. The book, again, is The Man Who Wasn't All There by David Handler from Southern House, who sponsored today's LitCast. 
Thanks for listening and please join us again soon for the next episode.